thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, I am so glad you've chosen to listen to today's episode here of God, Law, and Liberty and to join us in this new series that I've entitled Foundations. In this series, we're looking at what foundation we are building, not just for our personal lives, but for our society, from education to commerce to law and government and all points in between. There has to be a foundation. And the question is, what is it? And if you're just tuning in to this series, you may say that's simple. The foundation is the God of the Bible. Well, then let me encourage you to stay with us. That answer is, of course, right. But as I think I'll be able to demonstrate what that really means, it's theological content. And how we work that out has slipped from the ready consciousness of most Christians, and consequently, we've done a terrible job of applying that answer of God to matters of law and government and politics, and to be honest, most everything else. In fact, as I believe I said last week, Christianity, as it is presented and practiced today, has no answer, no solution to the problems we face in our culture. Now, to catch everybody up or to bring up to speed those who have not been able to join us, I'm just going to bullet point a few things that we've covered and explained in the first two episodes. And if you've not caught those two episodes, let me encourage you, go back, pick them up. But here are the bullet points. The first, and perhaps the most important, is the foundations of Western civilization have been overthrown. Not that they're being overthrown, but they have been overthrown at the highest levels of government in our land, and honestly, even at the state and local government levels. Now, I hate to say that to you, but to not say that is to be the doctor who knows that you have cancer and tell them you're feeling bad because, well, maybe you've got anemia or maybe you're just not getting enough sleep. We have to bravely and honestly face the situation as it now exists, if we're going to have any solution. And I demonstrated this fact, that the foundations have been overthrown at the highest levels through the discussion that I had with Attorney Jeff Schaefer, the director of the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College, as we looked at what he called the moral dullness of the oral argument in the U.S. Supreme Court in defense of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. In fact, uh, while I've not said this before, I'll throw it in today. The very reason Mississippi and other states have, in past years, been unwilling to ban doctors from performing abortions once human life is detected and defend it on that basis, that it's a human life, is itself evidence that the foundations of Western civilization have been overthrown. We are in the midst of a revolution against everything that Western civilization was founded on. But I don't have time to cover why that's so. 
but if you want to know, just shoot me an email, and I'll explain it. And for that matter, shoot me an email about any question you have in regard to the material we're covering. Just send it to info at factn.org, info at factn.org, and I'll get back to you as quickly as I can. Anyway, continuing on, the second thing we established, and we did that last week through both the secular humanist and the Christian theologian we discussed, is that the fundamental problem faced by our nation is the inability to deal with or the unwillingness of our leaders to deal with the ancient problem of the one and the many. Most likely, the problem is they don't even know what that means. And as I said last week, despite what was supposed to be a, a great education that I got, I had not heard of the problem of the one and the many until a few years ago. So if you've not heard of it, don't feel badly. But we didn't really answer the question of what is meant by the one and the many. I did mention a few of the issues associated with that problem last week. But perhaps a few more examples would be helpful. Because whether we know that the problem is the one and the many, or whether we've even heard of it, the issue surrounds us all the time. So I'm going to look at the book entitled The One and the Many and just give you the examples that were here. The problem of the one and the many may be avoided in the classroom, pulpit, and press, but it can't be avoided in life. The question remains. Is the state more important than the individual? Or does the individual have a reality which the state doesn't possess? What's the locus of Christianity? The believer or the church? Does marriage have a reality which makes its condition mandatory irrespective of the conditions of the husband and wife? Or do the persons in the marriage take priority in their wishes? Over the idea of marriage, is education to be geared to the development of the individual or to the welfare of society? Now, if you don't think that those things are very real, some of you who've been around for a while may remember Bill Clinton had this school-to-work program where the idea was by the time a student finished junior high, we were going to target what we thought their abilities were and look at the job markets and send them off into either trade schools or send them on to further education. I mean, that's what we were doing. We were trying to educate people for the sake of society. In, in the marriage case, uh, several years ago, in, in the case of marriage, in the case of Eisenstein v. Baird, a 1972 case that was the precursor to Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said that marriage is not an organic thing. It's just an association of two individuals. But then when they came along in 2015 in the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell versus Hodges, they said that the two individuals become something more than their individuality. You see, you see, they just can't figure out which way they want to go. These questions are everywhere in real life. Now, so the author is right. We do have opinions about all kinds of these things. But the question is, are those opinions sound? And sound according to what interpretive principle? Now, I'm going to get back to what I mean by interpretive principle a, a bit later in the podcast, but let me try to take these examples and state what is meant both philosophically and theologically by the words one and many. Now, let me stop right here and encourage you. Don't give up here. No, don't, don't think that 
oh, this is too heavy, this is too deep, this is too hard, whatever it might be. I had no idea how important understanding this was when I first heard of it, and I grappled with it, I struggled with it. Some of it I, I didn't get. I just took what I could get at the time, and now, after more time has elapsed and more thinking and more reading and more studying of the Word, all of a sudden I see that this issue of the one and the many presses on us all the time, and it will help you be able to more clearly and intelligibly make sense of what's going on around you. But not just that. The truth of the Word of God will explode, I guarantee you. And I'll tease you with this. Scripture is the progressive revelation in time of the reason why the issue of the one and the many is fundamental to everything. Let me say that again. Scripture is the progressive revelation in time of the reason why the issue of the one and the many is fundamental to everything. It's not just fundamental to the Bible, but to everything. And, and I'll leave that with you, but stick with me, and you'll see what I mean. Let, let me get back to what the two words mean. The one is not referring to a number, like one, two, three, but to a unity or oneness. I'm going to give you an example that I gave our daughter when we were home educating her. This was somewhere around the second grade, I guess it was. Uh, and we were covering ancient Greece. So I brought up Plato and Aristotle. And what I told her was that, well, Plato believed in this concept of unity or oneness. And <laughs> I think back, she was probably thinking, well, what are you talking about, Dad? But anyway... Uh, and I told her that Aristotle thought more in terms of the multiplicity of things. So I gave her an example that said, well, Aristotle found more interesting all the different variety of trees there are. And we looked out the front window and I said, see, we have oaks and hickories and dogwoods and red buds. But, but Plato wanted to know what treeness was. And yes, yes, I used the word treeness with my daughter. But I did go on to say that what Plato was interested in was what made something a tree in the first place. Was there some kind of ideal tree out there from which all other kinds of trees were a part or they came from that defined what it meant to be a tree? Re regardless of the quality of the example I use with my young daughter, the one is asking if there's something concrete or absolute by which all other things are to be understood or interpreted. That's the interpretive principle I mentioned a minute ago. And the many is just the opposite. It's interested, as I indicated about Aristotle, with the particularity or individuality of things. In a world of particularity and multiplicity, the question is, is the truth about those things inherent in their own particularity or individuality? You might say, is everyone a law to himself? Or is the truth about all those things their basic oneness? And, and perhaps now you'll see what I was getting at with my example about the trees. Now here is why the question of the primacy of oneness or unity and particularity or multiplicity is so important to the social order and is part of that order to law and government. I read it last week, but let me read it again. One of the most basic and continuing problems of man's history 
is the question of the one and the many and their relationship. Much of the present concern about the trends of these times is literally wasted on useless effort because those who guide the activities cannot resolve with the philosophical tools at hand to them the problem of authority. Now, how is it that this issue of the one and the many is related to the question of authority? Well, let me explain that. If the basic truth about things is the many, the particularity, individuality, who David is as opposed to who Fred or Bob or Linda or Sue is, and that's the ultimate reality, if that's what serves as our interpretive principle, then the proper source of authority is the individual. If the basic truth about things is oneness or unity, in other words, that all things participate in some one larger thing or become subsumed in some larger thing, then society, for example, is ultimate. This would lead to the state, the whole, the representative of oneness, having priority over the individual. And isn't that clearly demonstrated by the situation with COVID? It's a classic case of which is more ultimate, which is the controlling interpretive principle by which to evaluate what should be done. Is it the rights of the individual or the rights of the people as a whole to the nation not to be dragged down because individuals insist on not getting the jab? Now, now I'm not saying the jab is an inoculation or provides immunity because it clearly doesn't, but you do see the tension, don't you? I hope you can see that we can't solve the question of authority on this matter because we can't solve the problem of which is more ultimate, the one, the individual, or the many in society. Now, let me tie this back to the abortion debate to, to keep an example going that we can work out fully. Recall that the earlier quote, that our leaders cannot resolve the problem of authority, quote, with the philosophical tools available to them. Remember that. And then listen to this quote from Jeff Schaefer about the nature of the oral argument before the U.S. Supreme Court last month on the abortion issue. The attenuation of the courtroom exchanges from the gravity of the matter that was under consideration was on display in this form of argument that was deemed proper to the occasion. Now, what is Jeff saying? He is saying there is a form of argument that we have decided that any argument about the grisly murder of unborn human beings needs to be contained within. This form is the philosophical tool that you're allowed to use in the Supreme Court to argue in defense of pro-life laws. And as you heard last week, it was a whole litany of things, a multiplicity of particular things, from, as you'll recall, Jeff saying, the cost of contraception to access of women to the workplace to institutional credibility of the court, depending on how it decided the case. And all these things are to be tossed up in the air. And as few as five people will decide which one or more of these particular individual things has primacy, which of them is controlling. You see, they cannot say that there is one thing here that is controlling by which we are to evaluate and interpret all these particular things. Namely, is the unborn a person, a human being? And what does that mean? That's why Michael Hanby said, we have a revolution against being. 
And as I've said, and I'll keep saying, there was no discussion of what it means to be a person and a human being in that courtroom. None. Now, how pro-life is that? If there's going to be any controlling or transcendent unity brought to all these particulars that were thrown out to the court, it'll be the job of nine human beings on the Supreme Court sitting godlike over their fellow human beings to bring unity to that. Do you see here how the philosophical tool in the courtroom, the form, is particularity and multiplicity? That's what's controlling. Come to me with all of this stuff. But the court ultimately has to make a decision, doesn't it? It has to resolve all these particularities into some kind of unity, a decision one way or the other for one party or the other. And here is the key for the Christian to understand. In all of this, God is irrelevant to that resolution. And to the extent that Christians conform to the thinking of the world's thinking, the godlessness of this worldview thinking, and support it, by tacitly agreeing that this form, this philosophical form and tool is acceptable, and that this form contains all that can be said about something, then that's humanistic Christianity. In fact, in, in this particular instance, it's not even Christianity. It's conformity to the world, and it's pagan, as the world is. And that's why I said at the top of the show, I've said before, that Christianity, as it is presented in practice today, has no solution to the problems in our nation or world because the world doesn't have an answer and we give the same answer. We operate on the very same basis. Now I want to close with this clip from my interview with Jeff Schaefer. When this sort of analysis marks the outer limits of acceptable argument, we can see our lamentable condition. Well, indeed. The state of our culture, our law, and the Christianity that conforms to it without any challenge is lamentable. But we're going to get to the solution and how to challenge this system. So join us again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.